Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 60 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union, better known by all of us by now as just DCU. And whether you're driving off the lot or refinancing, DCU can help you save on your next auto loan with rates as low as 1.49% APR. Yes, you heard me right, 1.49% APR. You can learn more at dcu.org slash auto. Insured by NCUA, membership required. Just log on to dcu.org slash auto for more details. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Jumptown Skydiving. And if you've ever wanted to check skydiving off of your bucket list, now is the time to do it. You've been cooped up in the house for too long. And if you're going to do it once in your life, why not do it at America's oldest skydiving drop zone located conveniently off of Route 2 in central Massachusetts? Jumptown Skydiving is open seven days a week. And most people like to go on the weekend. But if you work in the service industry, Jumptown understands the weekends are when you make your money. That's why they offer service industry discounts on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. You can make a tandem skydive for just $185. And why not put a group together of everybody at work? If you're the group leader, for every person you bring, you get $10 off your skydive. Bring 10 people and you jump for free. Get more details at jumptown.com. And if you're ready to make an appointment, just call 978 844-5321. Okay, I am super excited about this week's episode of the podcast. Andy Bierzak is the lead singer and creative powerhouse behind the Black Veil Brides. Now, the band has a new album coming out called The Phantom Tomorrow on October 29th, and they also have a six-issue graphic novel series that's coming out that's also called The Phantom Tomorrow. Andy's also the host of his own podcast called The Andy Show, and he's the star of the Amazon Prime show Paradise City. And like most musicians, Andy has been chomping at the bit to get back out on the road and tour with the band. And he's getting ready to do that within this moment. We had a chance to talk about the new album, the songwriting process, the lockdown, the importance of the Black Veil Bride fans, his podcast, his radio show, Women in Rock, and his love affair with the Cincinnati Bengals, who continue to break his heart. 
I think you're going to absolutely love this episode. It was so cool getting to know him. So allow me to introduce you to Andy Bierzak from Black Veil Brides. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to... You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. You're officially on, on the it's, record it's real. now. It's real. It's really happening. Thank it's you really so much. Down. Thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm I'm excited to to get into whatever whatever ways we're going to go during this. <laughs> Maybe you've heard about me and someone's warned you because sometimes the show goes off the rails. I'm ready. Let's let's do it. I think we wherever met, it goes. I think we met years ago at a at a show at the Palladium in Worcester. Okay. Um, which is where you're going to be stopping when you're on tour within this moment later this year. And I think we kind of met in passing, but I think this is the first time I've been able to actually sit down and talk to you. So it's nice to meet you officially. Nice to meet you and meeting you in the way that we all meet now in the COVID era of the world, which is sitting in different rooms via screens on the internet. Yeah, it's very strange, but at least it's somewhat social and that we can see each other. And uh, I wanted to remark on your amazing studio because one of the things that everybody, no matter what it is that you do for a living, has had to worry about is what their room looks like behind them. (laughs) Yes, that is true. Well, you know, I so I I do a weekly podcast. And so early on in the whole process of being stuck at home, we, we had shot in a studio for years and we had made the transition into kind of converting this room into our little studio space because it got difficult to drive to the studio every week and then COVID happened and so nobody was coming over to the house so then i had to kind of you know there's a lot of time to buy lights and paint things and put things up and everything so uh now i basically i kind of joke that i end up spending half my life just sitting in this room looking at a camera I, uh, I've been on the radio now for about 23 years, and I have always joked that the only thing that keeps me from being legitimately crazy is that I'm in a padded room and the microphone is on. And that if the <laughs> microphone enough. wasn't on, I would just be in a padded room talking to myself. That's true. I mean, I, there is some of that because, you know, I, I do a, a radio show during the football season. I do a pregame show in Cincinnati. And I do the number of times that I've had to record it in a closet or something if I've been on the road and I'm just sort of talking to myself in a little room. If somebody were to walk by, uh, it looks a little little nuts, I guess. I wanted to talk to you about all of this stuff because it's been my experience over the years interviewing bands that 
Sometimes when they sit down to do the interview, no matter how many people they're going to get up in front of at night with the microphone and sing their songs and perform, sometimes the one-on-one interviewing thing, especially when they know they're live on the radio, they get weirded out. And you found a way to straddle being good at both, which is not (laughs) normal. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I think it's just because I'm insufferable and my ego doesn't allow for me to stop talking about myself. So uh, I have every chance in the world to just sit and talk about myself. Now, um, I've always uh, just since I was a little kid, I've always been interested in interviews and, uh, you know, I've always been interested in being on the radio in some capacity. Um, some of my biggest heroes were extremely good. What people say, like good interviews, people like Paul Stanley or Gene Simmons, these guys I looked up to when I was a kid. I would study the way that they would handle themselves in interviews and the way that they spoke about the, what they were doing or their, their art, or, you know, some people would say selling it or whatever else. Um, and also I'm a big wrestling fan. So I paid attention to wrestlers cutting promos and that kind of thing. It just, it all kind of filtered in in different ways. And I feel like if you're passionate about something and you care about what you're doing on a legitimate level, and that is the art or the act of making rock music, um, you shouldn't be able to talk about it and you should have the passion to be able to talk about it. And for me, um, any chance that I get to be able to talk about my favorite band in the world, uh, Blackville Brides, uh, I'm happy to do it. Plus, you got born with good pipes, because if you're going to do radio <laughs> stuff like like my voice is only good for radio. I mean, it sounds like I've been gargling razor blades since puberty. It does nothing else but this. But you, you've got a great speaking voice. And then obviously your day job, uh, you're not that bad of a singer in the band either. Boy, I didn't realize that I was going to get so many compliments here. What a wonderful experience. You know, just getting just lavishing praise onto me. I'm, I'm now I'm afraid of what the next half of the interview is going to be, where it's just going to be the talking crap about me section. Well, there was the part where I because I know, you know, where you're from that I figured I'd butter you up before I told you I was a Patriots fan. Cause I thought at that point, like the hate would be real. Oh, uh, I don't, I have nothing against the Patriots. It, <laughs> when you, when you are a fan of a franchise that is as often irrelevant or at least irrelevant for the last 30 years as the Bengals and all Ohio sports seems to be, you it's a, it's a poor choice to have beef with the, uh, the teams that are really winning because it, it's, it's a losing argument. And sometimes, you know, I will have friends, who will try to like, uh, you know, trash talk before games or something. And I'm the worst to do it with because I'm assuming that we're going to lose. So therefore, (laughs) I'm not really engaging in the trash talk. I'm just pessimistic at all times. Well, the thing about being a Boston sports fan, which when you're born in the area and raised in the area, it's injected into your DNA at birth. um, Sure. Is that we, and why not? All your teams win everything all the time. So not, not all the time, though, Andy. Seriously, we have had embarrassing, horrific public losses on a grand scale that have toughened us up and made sure. us obnoxious. So when we do win, we feel justified to be idiots about it. Fair. But you got to admit that the last 20 years have been particularly good to the Boston area. They have not sucked. And I've been to those (laughs) parades and they are a blast. I imagine. Boy, I you know, there's a there's a I watch The Office a lot and there's the Michael Scott thing where he says uh, he lives. He loves inside jokes and he'd love to be a part of one someday. When (laughs) I watch uh, any kind of parades for any kind of celebration with sports, I feel like Michael Scott wishing that he was on an inside joke. I just go, oh. 
what it would be to celebrate something. Boy, wouldn't that be fun? When it happens, because listen, if the Red Sox can break the curse of the Bambino, anything's possible. When it happens, I want to interview you after and find out exactly how much fun you had at the parade because it's bound to happen at some point and it will be worth the wait, I promise. I would say that sounds like a good plan, but it might be hard to track me down if the Bengals ever win the Super Bowl. I might just be floating in the clouds for the rest of my life. (laughs) I also love that you um, have been doing a podcast for a while because up until COVID, I always did all of my stuff live on the radio and then launched the Mistress Carrie podcast last summer and had kind of anticipated Um, a little pushback from the podcast community because I was coming from a radio background and it couldn't be further from the truth of like what I was expecting because the podcast community has been amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things where it's so, I mean, there's a, you could, if you're somebody who's interested in, in wearing two socks on your left foot, you could find a podcast about that. You know what I mean? Like there is, there is every specificity and every sub interest there is a representation in these shows. So because of that, because of how ubiquitous the idea is, it seems as if it's kind of morphed into this uh, parallel culture where any sub-interest or any idea that you have, you can find like-minded people, um, no, no matter how big or small that is. And because of that, the level of welcoming is specific only to the level of interest. If somebody's interested in what you're doing, they're excited to have you there or to have something to listen to. You know, And if I, I can't tell you the number of times where, you know, I'll go on a kick of watching whatever. It's say I want to watch all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies because I haven't watched them in a while. Well, while I'm watching them, I want to also find out more about the production. So I look it up and sure enough, there's 14 million different in-depth deep dive podcasts about just the Dream Warriors movie. You know what I mean? So it, it really is like kind of this informational service whether it's interviews or deep dive stuff or, you know, stories or documentary podcasts or crime things, whatever it is, any sub interest you have, you can kind of delve into. And so I think the community, it's almost like they're, it's almost like the podcast community is just the world. Like, you know what I mean? There's the, it's just everybody, everybody's listening to something based on something that they're interested in. I have yet to find a podcast about people with two different size feet because I have two different size feet and I, there's no podcast yet. I don't know if I'm going to have to be the one to start it but I got to find one. I got to find my people out there. There, I'm sure there has to be one. We (laughs) found one accidentally. Uh, My wife had uh, laser eye surgery a number of years ago. And we, we were looking up something about the, how, you know, a certain level of like you get dry eye or whatever for a little bit after you have the surgery. And we found out there was a whole like internet community and podcast for people who suffer through dry eyes after getting that specific surgery. So like if that, if there's that level of specificity, certainly you can find the one foot bigger than the other podcast. Have you been snooping into the Black Veil Brides podcasts and kind of checking in on what people are saying about you and the band? You know, I really tried to not, uh, when I was younger, when we first got kind of some success, I was, you know, like it's, it's natural. You're like, what's everybody saying about me? But then you realize through the course of any kind of career, if you're able to sustain any kind of success, it's really not for you. You know, it's, it's for fans to talk about stuff with fans and your perspective is essentially unnecessary. You know what I mean? Because I'm a person who's making the stuff and putting it out there, but I don't, I'm not. I'm never going to uh, be a fan, although I love this band, I can't see it through the perspective of a fan. And so a fan's insights and how they perceive the music or how they like it or the way that they want to discuss it, it's not for me to stand in the room with them and look at, you know what I mean? Like it's, 
the conversations that are had between two fans. If I have a conversation with a fellow dedicated, whatever, whatever band you want to say, Kiss, let's go back to Kiss. I'm a big Kiss fan. So if I have a conversation with a dedicated Kiss fan, it's going to be a different conversation than I'd have if Paul Stanley was standing right there with us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So because of that, it's like, it feels almost like it's intrusive for me to be like, Hey, <laughs> what are you guys saying about me? Do you know what I mean? Like let people like the stuff they like, or you could, if you want to say that our fourth record's not as good as our third record, whatever, like it's not a conversation for me to be a part of. But what I do see often is because of doing the podcast or because of having social media accounts, you do get to see a certain amount of feedback and you see these communities. And I think that that's really awesome for anybody to be able to get that kind of connectivity with people. When I talk to musicians and specifically songwriters, I, I'm amazed because I'm not either one of those things that um, I can't imagine putting your heart and soul into something as creative and personal as writing and performing music. And then to come across someone that talks shit about it as the creator, that would make me feel so terrible that I would want to just slice their skin off and wear it like a jacket. And so I, I would assume that you also run that risk of like getting any kind of negative feedback because that's gotta as impervious as you want to be to all of that. Like it, it's gotta hurt when you're creating this art that's so personal. Well, look, I mean, I think the reality is, and this is not, and I, maybe somebody might take this wrong, but um, when you're look, say you go digging on the internet to find things about you, right? Like if you're like, I want to see what people are saying about this thing. There is an, a human tendency to put more importance on the two negative things that you see than the 200 positive things you see. I don't know what that is, but I think it's pretty universal for most people where you're, you know, you see like you see stuff that agrees with your perspective. And so it almost doesn't affect you as much. And then you see the things that disagree with your perspective and it throws you off. So you have to think about it. And I've really tried to make a concerted effort, especially over the last six or seven years to celebrate the people who are being positive about stuff and not dig for things that are negative or try to disprove people. Because the truth of the matter is it doesn't matter what somebody else's opinion about a record is, is inconsequential. We're making stuff that we really like. You put it out there. If you like it, that's great. Um, But at the end of the day, somebody going, that's terrible. You shouldn't do that. It's really not going to affect whether we're going to make another record in that style or, or whatever. It's it's more just about at least it shouldn't. If you're a genuine artist trying to create something, you're not going to pander to what is being said on the internet. So um, yeah, I, I think it's obviously frustrating, but I don't, it's again, it's not for me. You know what I mean? Like it's just not. They're not. No, nobody's writing a review. At least I don't think people are writing a review going, "I can't wait till the singer sees this and quits." <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's not. That's not what it is. I think that was one of the things that kind of made things so difficult over the last 18 months is that everyone had to kind of live their lives virally because they were stuck at home. And the mental health crisis because of COVID was just perpetuated by the tidal wave of negativity that you're talking about, that it was it's really hard to kind of get out of that. So what were you doing over the last 18 months to kind of keep yourself positive and creative and to ride out the storm. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing is for us as, you know, musicians that play on tour that there's a certain level of like, 
you feel a connectivity. There's an adulation from the audience. There's a there's an uplifting element to going on stage and feeling that, you know, as it's often called, like electric church, the, the rock and roll show environment is very cathartic in a lot of ways to not have that. It uh, it kind of eliminates part of the connectivity. So you you have to try different ways to try to feel connected with people outside the realm of just what's in the four walls that you exist in. So for us, it was about really putting our passion and our hearts and souls into making a record, writing the best songs we could, finding new ways to perform, whether that was doing live streams or we did acoustic sets or you know, whatever it is, finding ways to stay creative and, and invested in the early process. And then by the time we were maybe two or three months into the the kind of global situation, we had our our plans set for the year. We were working and we were going to the studio and we were, you know, spending a great deal of time doing things that felt artistically fulfilling. And that was able to help kind of alleviate some of the isolation and the weird feelings of being in this kind of new world that we were all living through. So to me, I would say that having the outlet of being in a rock band was so valuable through the course of all this because it gave gave all of us in the band a chance to to make something instead of just kind of wallowing in whatever difficult times we were dealing with. You put this album together, and then obviously when you put an album together, you got to put a plan together to release it and tour on it. And you had to make the tough decision to push back the record, which yeah. had to be a little heartbreaking when you're you're setting all these milestones, but it kind of had to have been awesome because it's coming out right before Halloween. Sure. I mean, look, I've said it before. It was kind of just hubris. Honestly, it was like we got done with the record and we were like, this is an awesome record. We can't wait for everybody to hear it. Let's put it out right away. And then people came to me and said, hey, um, we can't make anything in that amount of time. Like the COVID has stopped production of CDs and records and like merchandising and the comic book you're working on and all this stuff. And I went, uh, let's just do it anyway. And then uh, we put it out and then fans are like, hey, will you have any of this other stuff? And we were like, no, we can't because of production. And then this one thing kind of piled on the other. And then eventually it became, well, why are we forcing this out right now when we can't have CDs, we can't have vinyl records, we can't have the comic book we've been working on, action figures, all this stuff that now we're able to release in conjunction with the record. Why are we going to ruin this thing when we could do such an awesome release and spend all this time with it and build this thing up? Why are we going to prematurely release it and not get any of that stuff done. So we made the call pretty early on to go, you know what, let's let's do this the right way. And it just, you know, it was advantageous because right around the same time, we got the go ahead that the tour was going to happen in the fall. And so we go, wow, so actually this works out great because we'll be able to release this record while we're on the road. Um, so yeah, it ultimately it worked out. It's weird to have a record complete that, you know, we've got to still wait a few months to release, but I think it's it's it was the better decision overall. I didn't grow up reading comics my sister did like crazy has thousands of them she's got them in the plastic sealed bags and the boxes and everything's sure. labeled but it wasn't something that i was interested in even though i love the movies and the characters and the stories you are someone that grew up with them and yeah. what is it like for you now to have your own it's pretty amazing you know i i uh i've been able to kind of dip my toes in that field with a couple of years ago i did a graphic novel for my last solo record my uh most recent solo record and that was a lot of fun but i didn't really know what i was doing and it was kind of trial and error and i think it turned out great and i had a lot of help in creating it but this time around i 
I really, I was able to design these characters and build this world and find the right people um, to, to build this story with me. And so, you know, and then the great thing is being in a rock band, we, we built this musical story together. We wrote this kind of rock opera. So then as you're working on the, the comic book itself, you've got this great bed of music to really listen to and play with and take the core core, uh, elements of characters and ideas and apply them to the book. So I think it's for me as a, as an avid fan of the genre and the medium, it's an opportunity to show people kind of wear your influences on your sleeve to kind of have a love letter to all these different comic books and ideas that have influenced us over the years. And so I just, I'm so excited to be able to, it's a dream come true scenario to be able to enter into this where as a little kid, my dad would bring me Batman comic books home from work and I would read them and get lost in that world. And now I get to make something along with some really amazing people that hopefully people can read and and feel some semblance of, you know, kind of getting lost in the world that this exists in. And you talk about, you know, the bands you grow up listening to, like Kiss, and the music is so tied to the this visual idea anyway. And I know that you've done acting in the past. And so to be able to have this 360 story, to have the music, to go with the visuals, um, that's a lot of minute details to cover. Storylines and connecting things. And um, how many... How many dead ends did you have to come back from in that writing process? Honestly, this, it really, it really flowed pretty well. Like I I think because I, before we had gone into the studio, there was a pretty big roadmap, you know, like I had written out what you might call like a story Bible. So there were beats that we knew we needed to hit. And then once it became, it went from just being me writing down some ideas to the full band collaboration where everybody's aware of the concept and story. And so you know, Jake's coming in with riffs or Jinx is coming in with a violin part or whatever it is. The, the fact that everybody was kind of working on the same flow and figuring out how to make this, this whole thing go together. We didn't really have any places where we weren't going from one to the next. We didn't write everything sequentially, but we knew the beats that we needed to hit and how to get that story put together. And it, and because we had done concept records before we did Russian divine, and that was a much more tedious process to really build that story out this felt like, okay, we know how to get to our end game here. We know how to get from point A to point B. So I would say the flow of things in terms of work was, was pretty easy. I mean, the the difficult thing is writing songs that you really think stand the test of being able to be on the record. And that takes time and, and, you know, you want to make it good, but overall this record was one of the most, um, certainly the most fun we've ever had as a band in the studio. And also one of the, the ones that just flowed the easiest. Well, I mean, you've done it six times, so if it's getting easier and more fun, that's a good sign. Yeah, I mean, the, we're just in a better place as a band. You know, the band was just about done uh, on the fifth record. That seemed like that was going to be the last one, and things were in a, a bad place, and we've subsequently had some changes, and we're in a really good place now. I mean, we're closer than we've ever been. I was talking yesterday to a few of the guys about how just how – there was a time when we didn't talk at all. You know, we'd be on tour and we'd play shows and then we'd go our separate ways. And that seems so foreign and crazy to me now because at this point we're up in each other's business all the time. You know, we're we're calling each other about things or hanging out and just talking socially or things things completely unrelated to, you know, I mean, it's, I hate to call it work, but what the work is, which is to, to be in the band. 
um, we have a much better relationship than we've ever had. And that lended itself so well to being in the studio and in a time where there was nothing else to do. You know, we were we would be at home with our with our families, our spouses, and then we would be in the studio and then we'd be back at home then we'd be in the studio and there was nowhere else to go. Living in Los Angeles, there's no restaurants open, no public places open. It was just going to the studio, coming back home. And just kind of existing in that bubble, so to speak, it really brought a level of closeness that we've never experienced. I've asked the question, I can't count the number of times to musicians, is it harder to keep a marriage or a band together? And I'm assuming you're going to give me the same answer everybody else, that it's harder to keep the band together. I think that the band is, a band is an interesting idea anyway, in that it's a marriage of, it's a marriage with almost no context other than a single shared interest. You know, like, a marriage is based upon, in most cases, uh, a, a, a bunch of levels of things that are pieces and parts into falling in love and having this relationship that is based on layers and ideas and personalities and concepts and goals and dreams and all these shared pieces that go together in a life. A band is often, you like Black Sabbath? I like Black <laughs> Sabbath. Let's play a song together. And then you play that song together well. And then you find somebody else that likes Black Sabbath, and then you all play that song together well. And then eventually, after a while, you've got five people that all like that Black Sabbath song, and you're playing it together. And then you go, we should write our own songs, too. (laughs) And then you start writing songs. At no point is any of that based upon anything other than that shared interest in music or a shared common goal in terms of what you want out of your career or goals or ambitions or uh, performing style or whatever it is. They're, They're all... Um, surface level things. And then if you're lucky, you get to go on tour. And then when you get to go on tour, you're in a car or a van, you're in close quarters with people that you don't, in some cases, know a whole hell of a lot about other than what music they like or how they play. And we've been lucky that over the years, some of those personality quirks and differences reared themselves in ways that were difficult for us to deal with. But in most of ways, we've been very lucky that we genuinely like each other. You know, the five people that are in the band right now, we all really like each other. Um, and we we certainly have differences in personality and different aspects about ourselves. But that is as a as a feature instead of a bug, which in a lot of cases, it can be a problem. It also kind of depends on what your backstory is, too. And you have this amazing story, this rock and roll story that's been said so many times that you grow up in one place and you turn 18 and you make the pilgrimage to L.A. Sure. What was that experience like for you? Um, You know, I'd like to say that it was, you know, the coming of age story that it that uh, maybe it, it sounds like, but it just was life. I just thought. This is the way that things have to be. I wanted to do this more than anything else. I knew that it was going to be a dead end in my hometown. I couldn't find anybody serious enough about doing it. I would go through, you know, there was like 22 different people in my band growing up because it would be somebody would play for a weekend and then they'd get a good paying job and then they didn't want to be in a band anymore. You know, so like there was it was just too hard to keep it together. And I had come out here once before uh, when I was around 14 or 15 for just a, a week or two. And I saw that there was just an energy of people really cared about making music and saw it as a real thing. And like, not just something you do on the weekends, but like a way of life. And so I knew that I had to be out here, but there was never, the dream wasn't, oh my God, I want to live in LA. The dream was I need to be somewhere where people will take this seriously and do this and sacrifice and grind and put this above anything else until we can make it work. And so 
you know, I did what I had to do. If that was sleeping in my car or staying on a friend's couch or eating expired taquitos at 7-Eleven before they throw them <laughs> out, whatever it was, I did what I had to do. And at that age, you don't really consider how bizarre the circumstances are. You know, when you're 18 years old, you're just like, all right, well, this is what it is. You know, I'm going to, I sleep in the back of this 86 Cadillac and I eat old taquitos and I drive around and try to find people to join a band. That's, that's what life is. And, uh, I was very lucky that I met people who were interested in doing what, what I wanted to do and had the same dreams and goals. You also found an audience and you've been separated from that audience because of COVID looking forward to being able to go out on the road and reconnect with the audience in person and to be able to present this new music. Can you talk about how important the relationship is with your fans? I mean, you know, we are a band that it sounds like I'm, I'm trying to be uh, exceptional or that, that we are different than other bands by saying this, but I do believe that there is truth to saying that we are a band that has a uniquely special connection with our audience in that we were written off by rock media, by the industry. You know, in the early days, we couldn't get a show booked. We couldn't get a. We couldn't get anybody to represent us. We there was there was no hope for this band from a industry or media perspective. But the fans of the band were relentless in their support and passion for the band, and essentially forced us into people's consciousness. They they forced Blackville Brides to be a thing. Their level of passion and dedication to the the visuals of the band to the message of the band to the community of the band made it possible for us to be a band that went from not being able to get a show booked and having to play parking lots in los angeles to within two years we're on a major label and touring and international tours uh and and on the cover of magazines you know what i mean like that's it really goes down to the fans and that is still the case you know we're a band now we're on our sixth record and we have our first top 10 song at radio. All the years of of being a band and the fans that we have, all of the changes, think about the time between the last 11 years, the differences in scope of how bands or times change or interests change. Technology changes. That, yeah, I mean, through all that, here we are this many years in our career and the level of support is, is such to where we're having our greatest success in terms of charting with a song that we've ever had in our career. That is 100% down to people just not giving up and saying, I love this band, I'm going to support this band. So for us to get the chance to go back out on the road and play shows with this community of people and sing these songs with people that truly care about them, um, it's incredibly important. And we're just, we're so excited to get back to it. Congratulations, by the way, on the first ten, top 10 song. Maybe it, maybe it took the world a little time to catch up to what you guys were doing. Maybe that's what it was. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's whenever it happens, it, it's it's okay by me. I'm just I'm just excited that that here we are and that you know you just get to do this. I've always said my biggest dream in life is to get to keep doing this. A lot of times, and people don't consider this because, and this is I'll just say this: when we made our first major label record, we made it at a studio in L.A. and there was a coffee table full of like kitschy knickknack rock and roll books. And it was just to look at while you're waiting in the lobby or whatever. But there was one book that the cover of the book had the band Nitro on it. And it was a book that was 80s hair metal guys and then quotes from the 80s hair metal guys. And it was basically making fun of the genre. But the quotes were guys in bands that had fallen out of favor or were not, in fact, successful saying things like, this is going to last forever. This is we're going to be big forever. Kip Winger talking about we're going to be the biggest band in the world in 30 years still. All this stuff. 
And I remember reading that at 19 years old and going, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> you know, these guys, it did not work out the way they thought. And it wasn't that it scared me. It was more that it instilled an, a, a thing in me of you got to appreciate every minute that you have where people care, where people are allowing you the opportunity to do this, because a lot of people don't get to choose when they're done. A lot of people, the world tells them that they're done. So if you get the chance in 10 years to still be doing this and people care, that would be awesome. I remember speaking to somebody at the studio saying, if in 10 years people still care enough for us to be able to sell records and go on tour and all that, that will be an amazing benchmark where we can go, okay, let's keep going. And here we are, you know, last summer we celebrated the 10th anniversary of our first record. And now this summer we've got our first top 10 song. So um, it's, it's just an incredible, it's an incredible feeling to have the support of so many people for this amount of time. Well, the thing about the rock community, and it gets proven over and over again, even to the guys from Winger, is that they're still out playing shows because rock, unlike every other genre of music, in my opinion, once the fans love you, your fans will love you forever. And there is a there is a loyalty and a longevity that I think rock has that like pop and other genres of music seem to be way more fickle. Whereas, you know, you bring up, you know, Black Sabbath. I mean, they're 50 years old, the band, and we still love them because rock fans are so passionate and loyal. And by the way, I don't mean to be disparaging to Winger. And no. very, it's very true that what we've seen is a renaissance over the last 10 years, especially with bands that maybe weren't at the top echelon of that era are touring and touring successfully. And that's because one thing that is a huge blessing, I think, for the entirety of rock music that people don't necessarily acknowledge is that as much as we all disparage social media and talk about the negativity of social media, the connectivity that a band like you know, name whatever band from the 80s that maybe never reached that top tier. Well, if you're a fan that was maybe a minor fan of them 30 years ago and you like them on Facebook, you're going to be able to find out that they're playing in your town in a way that you wouldn't have 15, 20 years ago because the only media that you would have gotten is what was put in front of you, the shows that were advertised to you. Now, if you're a winger fan specifically, you're going to know where they're playing and so many more people are going, you know what, I really liked that band back then. I'm going to go see that. And I think that that speaks to the timelessness of rock and sometimes it just takes a little bit of time for people to go you know what this means a lot more to me and i'm gonna i'm gonna relive my youth in this way or i'm gonna i'm gonna find a way to to feel good again about this stuff and so i think the connectivity that we've been allowed over the last 10 to 15 years especially has allowed for all of rock to see a huge resurgence with people because it's people are seeing it more for a long time you only saw what was put in front of you and when i was a little kid the only bands that were ever put in front of me were Seattle grunge bands because that was what was popular. And I was never really interested in that style. So I would go back and listen to my dad's records and then I'd go to school and say my favorite bands and no one that I grew up with had heard of any of them because it wasn't around. You'd had to have a parent that was obsessed or whatever else for you to find that stuff. And now young kids are discovering, you know, I saw a kid the other day that had tagged us in something that they listened to pretty boy Floyd and glamor punks. Those are bands that very few people in the public consciousness know, know who they were. They were never huge bands, but bands that I liked when I was a teenager and was like, you know, thought I was cool because not many people knew about them. Now kids are finding them because you can go on Spotify and hear it. So there's certainly downsides to the connectivity of everything, but I think you're right that it has allowed an opportunity for rock to really live in a way that 
it's not just Black Sabbath and ACDC and Van Halen and Kiss. It's the entirety of the history. People get to see it. But the, the other side of that and the reason that I had brought up those other bands was those bands were put in a position where they had many of them didn't have the dedicated audience at the time to lift them up through the difficult times. Well, some and, of them got famous overnight. They got they had right. a hit song on the first song and they went from nobodies to world fame. And, you know, as well as anyone, fame can be fickle and it can be taken away just as quickly. And oftentimes it's a dangerous thing to be that flavor of the month because it's not earned. Your audience hasn't grown with you. It's not a thing where there's a connectivity on a personal level with you. So it can sometimes be more dangerous to have that because there's in five years when it's the radio is not playing you anymore there's nobody clamoring for your stuff because they only ever were interested in you for that one song the 90s when i grew up was a huge time for that the everybody was a one-hit wonder then it was just a song and you knew the song and then you never heard about the band again so i think what we have now is there's so many more opportunities for people to really have sustained success or careers but for us this has been now 11 years of people going you know what we're going to keep giving you a shot. And to me, that is like, I don't think I could ask for anything more than that. Plus, there's artists like yourself that are so quick to cite the bands that helped inspire the music you create now. Like I read something that you were a fan of the Dropkick Murphys. Well, being, being born and raised in Boston, when I see that you are a fan of the Dropkick Murphys, who are like hometown heroes to us, I was like, fuck yeah. So it does mean something when you're citing influences and personal tastes and, and bands that you love because then your fans may discover a Dropkick Murphy, you know, album or whatever that they may not have ever heard of, but bands always going, well, this is where I came from. And I think rock also does a lot more of that than a lot of other genres too, where they're waiting, they're, they're willing to cite the references. Certainly. To I mean, show I, where they know, are in the evolution. That's how I found a lot of bands. You know, I would see the, you know, whatever band I go to a, a show and I'd see the AFI, I'd see Davey Havoc wearing a Sisters of Mercy shirt. So then I'd go, okay, well, I'll go check that out. And it was a lot harder when I was a kid to, to do that. But, you know, at any point now, I like to be able to share that. For me, when I was a little kid, I loved the discovery of music that way. I liked to find Dropkick Murphys, and then you go, well, okay, well, why does this first record sound different? Oh, because there's a different singer. So then, oh, but he's got another band. It's called Street Dog. So I'm going to go see that band when they come into town, and then finding stuff that way. And so I think that now there's so much more of a chance. If I wear a button on a jacket, or I wear a T-shirt, or I mention something on my podcast or on stage – Kids are going to find that stuff and it's going to open up a whole new world because I think the the biggest part of rock music that we need to get behind as a genre is the support of people discovering stuff and letting people like stuff. One of the biggest problems that we have in rock is a little bit of a cannibalistic nature and a gatekeeping nature where if a band starts to become successful, they are no longer legitimate and therefore people will shit on everything that they do. To me, Avenged Sevenfold getting a number one record is good for all of us. You know, whether, whether, and I happen to be an Avenged Sevenfold fan, but if you're not, it doesn't matter. It's inconsequential. It's good for the genre to have that kind of ubiquitous success. So my hope would be if anybody finds us, if we're an entry point into something else, that's amazing. But I'd also like to think that if your entry point was, you know, any of these number of, of hip hop artists that are doing pop punk records now or, or whatever it is, a lot of people are, are angry about that. To me, I see it as a win for rock in the sense that 
maybe you just you're a young kid who doesn't know about rock music and you discover one of these pop punk records and then you go you know what i'd like i want something a little bit heavier what's what's out there that's like that and then maybe you find 10 15 other bands that are out there touring so or I think it makes you want to pick up a guitar yourself is, exactly exactly and by the way that's significant because it wasn't five years ago that we were seeing people saying nobody's buying guitars anymore well now that's not the case i know from just getting ready to go on this tour with the partnerships that our guitar players have with Schechter Guitars, that their orders are insane right now. They're seeing unprecedented numbers of orders in terms of getting stuff out there and, and guitar centers restocking incredible amounts of guitars. So that's not, a, that's not coincidental. That's because there's a room need interest. I heard a statistic that said in the height of the lockdown, guitar manufacturers were selling a thousand guitars a day in the United States alone, which is a staggering number to me, but great. And that- and now uh, 900 of those are sitting in a corner with somebody who never actually decided to play it. They all bought them. <laughs> and said, I'm going to learn how to play guitar. I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I hope did they that, are. Though. There's I, a lot of smoke on the water getting played right now. Well, I played bass for years and when I was younger, and I really liked it. And then early in the pandemic, I was like, you know what? I'm going to get back into that. And I, started, I so I got a, a bass again, and I started playing it every day. And then within like two weeks, I was writing songs and that's useless. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to write a song on the bass. So I just put it down. And then eventually it became more and more days apart for me actually doing it. And so now I just have the shame of that bass that I've you know touched once in the last month. Because I'm not a songwriter, I started asking songwriters this question and I look forward to your answer. From a songwriter's perspective, can you give me an example or two of what you think great songwriting is? A song that you covet, that you look at and go, I wish I wrote that song. And why? Um, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a picture. It's a complete picture. So if it's, if it's meant to be a, a silly, good time rock and roll anthem, a complete version of that, where from front to back, it fe- you you understand what you're in. You're there for that moment. So, if if you're sitting out if you're setting out to write a song that is telling a story of any kind, the ability to tell that story from beginning to end, whether that's a particularly interesting story or not, is to me the most important thing. And that that plays on a lyrical level, a melody level, and a sonic level with the music. To be able to each individual song on a record, each individual time you go there to make a song, to be able to completely realize the idea of that song so that the listener can understand. They may not agree with or totally get or have shared the experience or anything of what you're saying, but the fact that they can listen to it and go, yeah, that's a song. That's that that idea. I hear that idea. So whether that's Rock and Roll Night by Kiss or Jungle Land by Bruce Springsteen, it's a full story. You know what you know what's there. And, and to me, I always strive as a writer to really bake in the concept of what I'm trying to say into every song. And if I listen back to a song and feel like it's an unfinished thought, then it's I haven't done the song justice. So those would be your those would be your examples. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the perfect song to me is is Jungle Land by Bruce Springsteen. I think it's the greatest uh, rock song written because it it plays on every level. It's it's a rock song. Maybe it's not a metal song, but it's a rock song. It's got heavy guitar work and it feels like you can drive your car to it. And then at other points, it's a straight up musical. At other points, it's broken down storytelling. It's a relatable lyric. It's incredible musicianship. It, to me, is, is a perfect song. Before I let you go, you're heading out on the road within this moment. And 
one of the things for somebody like me that's that's been in rock for a long time, it's like I've been waiting for a time when women in rock would get to the point where it just didn't get cited that they were a woman, that there would sure. be so many female bands out there, female fronted bands, that they would just get looked at as another band. Yes. And I feel like we're getting there. So going out on the road within this moment, who are just one of many examples of amazing rock bands and artists that are coming out that also just happen to have women in them. Can you Mm -hmm. talk to me about your perspective because you're touring with them? Well, you know, my my wife, Lila Zara, is is a female musician who has been doing this for for a while and, and has a journey that her experience and being around for her experience has has opened my eyes to so many things that I didn't necessarily even see, admittedly. Early in my career, I had never considered the term female fronted as anything other than just a thing that was said. As I've been around her and watched the constant roadblocks that are put in front of women in the industry and the way that the subjugation of, of female fronted as a thing, as a descriptor, like that makes the band a different band because it's a female fronted band. The the kind of just the the absolutely ridiculous double standards that exist within the industry and any number of things. The level of badassery that you see with the, with these women in rock music that are just absolutely killing it, whether it's Lilith or whether it's Maria or Lizzie Hale or any of these artists that are just so fucking cool and powerful and completely kick down and kick apart these stupid constructs that exist based on nothing but old outdated archaic ideas of what rock stardom is or who a rock star is um to me i think that we are seeing an absolute renaissance and i think that we are on the precipice hopefully and i think i can feel it to where that label or the idea that it's somehow different because of someone's sex is absolutely um removed from the equation and not considered uh, going into anything, you know, I mean, it's for me, I look at uh, my wife Lilith is going on tour with Evanescence and Hailstorm later in the year. And to me, the fact that that is its own tour and it doesn't, it's not called like the girls tour. It's just or a the fucking Lilith rock and roll. tour. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a rock and roll tour and it's a kick-ass tour that people are, 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 I can't wait to see. To me, that is symptomatic of where we're headed which is that those those silly constructs will no longer exist. And I think that, again, admittedly, like many things that I think we've all found over the last, especially the last year where there's been so many social changes and so many of us have been woken up to so many things. I was unaware of things that were being perpetuated in within the industry that I work in because I wasn't opening my eyes to it or I didn't consciously make myself aware of it because I have gotten to exist as a man in this industry on a different plane. And that is an unfairness that has existed that I wasn't consciously aware of. So um, yeah, I think it's really important that we're transitioning into this place, not only as a rock community, but just the music industry as a whole. Well, I think, you know, one of two things has the ability to really change your perspective. Yours in the case that your wife is also in the same industry, so you can compare and contrast your experiences, or when you're forced to look at the world through your daughter's eyes, which which is a lot of uh, the case with a lot of the other guys and bands that I know that they're just not aware. And now they've got this beautiful daughter and they're like, oh, shit, the world is not the same for her. And I remember being in rock radio 23 years ago where it was like, 
well, we've got Carrie on the air staff. We've got the one girl move yeah. on and talking about yeah. the, the new rock bands. And well, we've got the female band now. So we've got yeah. that one. And so we don't necessarily need another one because we've got that one. And watching that change just in my own longevity of career Getting to this point where I can't name all the rock bands that I play on the radio that have members that just happen to be female is like the most yeah. amazing revelation for somebody that's been waiting for this moment. So yeah. to see a band like yours going out within this moment and like I ask you the question because of your perspective, not only with your wife, but also because you are touring with these other bands. And I knew that your answer to that question was going to be profound. It's just amazing that we're living in this world now that it's like, yeah, there's chicks in it, but they rock. It's interesting because, you know, um, for for the first part of our career and our first record cycle, uh, our drummer was uh, a female, Sandra Alvarenga, who is a friend of mine and st we've stayed close over the years. Musically, we had different ideas of where to go, but that, you know, we, we've still remained close. But I remember never not realizing how um, how much of a conversational topic that would be when we would go places, you know, oh, there's a girl in the band. And, and it was just such, and that was, you know, 10, 11 years ago. And now so many of my favorite up and coming bands, as you say, a member of the band happens to be female. And that is not, it's not the first thing in an article or what's talked about. And again, just going back to it, I know I mentioned it, but the term female fronted is so ridiculous when you break it down because you don't ever hear a band referred to as a male fronted band. Right. Yeah, uh, and it's not a genre. There's not a style. You would, I would, I can remember, probably eight years ago or something. You'd be on like Warp Tour or something, and you would hear like, oh, you know, it's like a female fronted band. Like that was a thing. Like that was a descriptor of the music. Like, well, does it is it a polka band or what? What is the <laughs> style of music? There, it's not a descriptor. So yeah. I think it's the fact that you see that less and less is is good for everybody. Yeah, it's just amazing. And like and like sitting in my seat where I've watched this industry change, especially from a woman's eyes in rock and roll, it's it's it, it's like it's like the Bengals winning the Super Bowl. It's like it's about fucking time. Oh boy, let's uh, <laughs> let's ha happy. I'm happy to say that it's happening at a faster pace than the Bengals winning the Super Bowl is. <laughs> Well, I am so grateful for the generosity of your time. I'm so happy that everything, all of the fruits of all the labor of the band are finally coming to fruition and that it's all kind of converging at the same time for you, that the record's coming out, the comic books are coming out, that you're able to get vinyl printed and get out on tour and support it. It, it, we've all been waiting a really long time to be able to get together in that electric church that you were talking yeah. about and to be able to just go back to doing what we love. And, you know, your band seems like you are in this amazing place, both personally and professionally. And that's fucking awesome for you. Yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate you saying all that. We're just, as I said, the, the countdown, it, I, I said earlier today, I was talking to somebody and I said, it, it feels like the longest Christmas Eve of all time to get back on tour. You know, it's just, it, we just can't wait to get back out on the road and play these songs and just so appreciative of the position that we're in. So thank you for, for talking to me today. Uh, this was a, this was a blast. Are you going to get bubble wrapped before the tour? Because I know that you've been injured a time or two and everyone has their spinal tap moment. You're feeling good and everything's okay. Well, I can't promise anything. I do tend to, <laughs> I do tend to, to break bones or hurt things in, in weird and avoidable ways. So 
I can, I can never promise anything, but I, what I will promise is I'll try my best uh, to avoid falling off of things or jumping <laughs> off of things uh, in a way that's going to hurt me. Well, I look forward to seeing the tour and meeting you in person. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Congratulations on the success of the single already. And I know that the album, when it finally does come out, is going to be huge for you. So thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good talking to you. There he is, Andy Beerzak from Black Veil Brides. The new album, The Phantom Tomorrow, comes out on October 29th. And if you are a lover of graphic novels and comics, the six-part series, The Phantom Tomorrow, is also being released in October. In the show notes of this episode of the podcast, you will find a corresponding playlist that links to all of the music that we talked about, including the new Black Veil Brides. You're also going to find links to find Andy online and more details about his podcast and Paradise City. You're also going to find all of the links to find the Black Veil Brides online as well including details on their upcoming tour. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss anything. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday you get the sit rep. All your rock news and music headlines in less than five minutes. Thanks again to our sponsors, Digital Federal Credit Union at dcu.org and Jumptown Skydiving at jumptown.com. And you can join me every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern, live on my Facebook page for Cocktails in the War Room. And you can always find all the info you need at MistressCarrie.com. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.